We're in, we're in. Welcome back to the Safety Meeting Podcast, everybody. Uh, today's guest, Mr. Jeremy Robinson. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thank you for having me, Mr. Heckert. Well, thank you for having us here at the uh, Brickyard Films facility. And uh, Jeremy is my partner in Brickyard Media Group. 51% of the reason why we are podcasting right now. <laughs> uh, so thanks for the opportunity to podcast here, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, going down this venture with us. Yeah. And uh, I'm super excited. I'm excited. Episode 11. Yes. We've been saving this one for... The number 11. Yeah. Is that a lucky number for you? It is a, a lucky number for me. Yeah. Um, and do you want to get into why that's lucky, or do you want to keep it lucky? Um, well, either way, it'll still be lucky, but for some reason, I've always been fascinated with the number 11. Um, awesome number, and avid craps player, so the number 11 is a good thing. It's never a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Every 11 is a good 11. That's right. Nice. That's right. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, what we like to do here on the show is walk people through their life story. That takes about half the episode, and then we usually have some bullet points to like splinter off on, and there's some, some tree branches there to get into. So let's start off with where you were born. Well, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. Great. Uh, <laughs> We're off to a good start. I'm writing that down like I don't know that. Uh, like I'm going to have to take very little notes. What my first thought there uh, was, what's the, you've got an interesting story about the day you were born and uh, not being born alone there. This is, this is correct. But yes. do we talk about it now or do we talk about it when we get to college? Uh, we can talk about it when we get to college. Copy that. Yes. So make a mental note, everybody. Cool yes. story of uh, the... We'll revisit that. The origin birth story has an, an, uh, an interesting side note when we get to college. Um, so we're born in uh, Indiana. Yes, sir. And uh, grew up there, whole thing. Same house all through everybody. Lived, grew up, all that stuff. Pretty much. Uh, we moved uh, to the house that my, my father still lives at now um, when I think I think I was one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, so still at the, the same house. Went to a nursery school, kindergarten, grade school, middle school, high school, college, post-college for a quick minute before... Uh, Moving to uh, lovely Los Angeles. Awesome. So uh, any interesting stories of note in your formative years, elementary school, middle school, anything stick out? There's like, oh, this happened. Um, like, did you find your love of racing when you were a child? Uh, it was interesting. My, my, my mom uh, used to take me to the track um, when, when I was young. And, I, you know, it's probably, I don't know, six, seven years old, we'd go to... Uh, to practice, you know, I think I was too young to physically go to the Annapolis 500. My dad would come every once in a while, but he really was not into uh, the racing aspect of it. So he would go out and sit in the infield with his newspaper mm-hmm. and suntan and his two short shorts. Dad probably, shorts? Yes, full dad shorts, full <laughs> 70s dad shorts, um, and probably... And he still won't admit this, but dress socks and more than likely his white K-Swiss tennis shoes. Um, but mom would go and she had all her stats and, you know, how fast the cars were going. She had her little spreadsheets for, that she cut out from, uh, from the newspaper. And dad would be off in the infield someplace. Interesting. Yeah. I always thought you got the racing thing bug from your dad. Yeah, no, not at all. What kind? So, did mom and dad have separate cars? Did mom have the fast one? Um, no, actually, the way it worked out was over the years, my dad would have a company car, and after X amount of years, that we would buy that car. Mm-hmm. So that car would get passed down to my mom, 
then to my brother, then to my sister, then to my other sister, <laughs> and then whatever the scraps were when I finally got my license. It was whatever was running mm-hmm. at the time. But he did have an MG, which was beautiful, but just a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, eventually my mom got a uh, Volkswagen Cabriolet, which she loved to death. Mm-hmm. So she would always have the top down. Um, and that was her little baby. Um, I think she had a couple of those. I know she had a really bad car accident. Um, which totaled one, and they finally moved into the Prius zone now in modern days. Yeah. But but if she could have had a, an electric cabriolet, that oh, would have been the ticket? For sure. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, as soon, any chance she got, she had that top down. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then my dad, I think, you know, through a series of cars, and then retirement, he bought a Cadillac, but didn't want to put the miles on the Cadillac. Mm-hmm. So the Cadillac stayed in the garage, and he drove his old Bonneville SSE. It yeah. was just, he's such a, uh, an interesting mind. He was an actuary, so everything was some sort of you know, algorithm or equation with him, keeping track of mileage, and we can only use this for this trips, and I don't want to put the miles on this car. And so finally, I think he sold the Bonneville for like a dollar or something like that. <laughs> and now, just until recently, had the Cadillac, you know, with 250,000 miles on it or something. And uh, so now he's got the, the little Prius wagon, but finally sold the Cadillac too. And who knows? Maybe that was another dollar. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So he was not one to, to, to get, rid of, get rid of things like that. He always held on until the, you know, until the very, very end of it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you go on a race practices at six and seven. Do you remember your first official race? I don't remember my first official race. It was probably a street race when you got your license, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or before I got my license. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Many, many of those. Did you ever get popped for driving the car before you got your license? I did not. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I took it out one weekend. My parents were gone with my sister at a soccer tournament. Neighbors ratted me out. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. I, I had to wait. My birthday's in October. I had to wait till January to get my license. Oh. Got because it. For the punishment. Yeah. Three yeah. months. Three months suspension from the parents. Uh-uh. And then we had a snow day in January, and my dad took me to the DMV to take, to take my driver's license test. Just to challenge you in the snow? I mean, it was, you know, if it gets below 46 degrees in North Carolina, we have snow days. Oh, got it. Yeah. So yeah, it was no danger. Yeah. yeah. So um, high school, how was high school for you? Were you, like, were you the man? Were you in the theater program? Were you, did you, when did you decide you wanted to be an actor? Uh, that that came along actually in college. Um, I w- I'd originally gone to to school to study business, or at least in my head I thought I was going to study business. And at the time, in high school, I was playing drums. And then towards the end of high school, I bought a mixer, and a friend of mine, uh, Kyle Kinnett, and I would DJ summer parties. Right? Oh, cool. So going into college, I, you know, had this DJ gear. So I started doing, you know, all these parties, dorm parties and then fraternity parties and, uh, and sold my drum kit. I was like, oh, man, I can make money being a DJ, mm-hmm. you know. So every weekend or, you know, throughout the week, I'd be at a bar for 50 bucks, you know, DJing at some random bar or, you know, parties along the way. You want to drop your DJ name? Well, you don't have to. I think I call myself DJ Ice. 
Um, other people, somehow it came up. Uh, uh, he's like, you know, Robinson's like, uh, he's like a cool breeze. <laughs> so it, then it became like DJ Cool Breeze or something along those lines. Right. You so know? you let the fans name you. Yes. Yeah. 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 And this was in the days of, you know, the first uh, samplers. I had, uh, I think it was Newmark was the uh, the mixing board that I bought and had a little sampler. So I'd, you know, throw the microphone in and sample like DJ, DJ, DJ Ice or something along those lines. Like the hot buttons here on the recorder? Yeah, well, you can sample those. Have you heard any of these? No, I have not. English, motherfucker, do you speak it? Yeah, there's a couple of good ones on here. I like those. Yeah. Don't let me get a hold of those. Yeah, we got to reprogram them. We need a special edition Jeremy Robinson program. Yeah. Because you've got uh, a ton of catchphrases. They'll probably all be hip-hop lyrics from the early 90s. Yes, or, or 80s, 80s into 80s into 90s. Yeah, for so, sure. So uh, in the middle of DJing in college, did you decide that you wanted to pursue DJing and that brought you to Los Angeles and then you decided acting was going to be a thing? Well, actually, I mean, through, through DJing, and at the time, you know, uh, MTV and, uh, you know... Uh, Video hosts mm-hmm. were a big thing. You know, Martha Quinn and um, I, I have to go back. I mean, can't remember half, half the names of all right. those guys that, 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 that we grew up with. Um, but in my head, I was like, oh, I really love music. And, and maybe I could be, you know, a video jockey. Right. right. I could be I can be on MTV. Mm-hmm. So I started taking um, radio and television classes. Which, which I really enjoyed. And then through that, I started taking uh, theater classes. And through the theater classes, um, I realized, you know, all right, well, now my major is going to be radio and television, um, you know, telecommunications. And my minor, I was like, well, I can get a minor in theater and drama. And through the, the theater classes, I was getting a lot of feedback from, um, from various professors and teachers. And like, you know, have you thought about pursuing this professionally? Mm. And so that was the first um, kind of bug that, that, that set in there. Um, I, as much as I enjoy going to theater, I never really enjoyed theater itself. Mm-hmm. It was more of just like the storytelling aspect or being a part of you know, telling a story mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed. Um, terrible, terrible stage fright. Really? Which even as I'm talking to you now and I've known you for... I don't know. Ten years, ten plus years. That uh, even the, even this is a little, you know, really unnerving. Oh yeah. man, yeah, it's the spotlight that uh, you know it's not. Which is interesting because you're in the spotlight every day that you go to work, right? But that's different, right? It's, right. Not, it's because you're behind the camera. Well, that and it's one of those things where I mean, as you know, you know, from a, uh, an assistant directing standpoint, um, you just drop into kind of that zone and you don't think about oh i'm talking to 150 people yeah you know we always joked i mean that the, the worst part of my day is the the opening safety meeting because it's like oh all eyes all eyes i'm like i don't want those eyes right you know i do now i used to hate it also yeah. but now that i'm working out bits on my cruise yeah i'm like this is my five minutes that i get to go up everybody yeah i don't prepare right i'm just like here's a joke yeah that's not funny let's break the ice yeah, yeah. be safe right yeah so, um, do you know uh, the story behind the safety meeting podcast name? Um, I always thought the safety meeting 
quote unquote was that was when everyone was going to go get high on set. Right. So there's three there's three meetings. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because um, I like to find depth and importance where there is none. Right. Um, me and one of our producers, Murph, Kevin the Murph yep. Murphy, yeah, uh, who works with us on set sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, came up with, hey, why don't you call your show the safety meeting? And I was like, oh. And I resisted it for a little while because I didn't. It wasn't my original thought. Right. Well, and that's why you resisted it. Yeah, a hundred percent. That was full ego. Yeah, a hundred percent ego. Yeah. But then I embraced it because uh, it does have that AD thing that we do, which is awesome. Right. Um, but a second meeting is when people at work want to go get high. That's their secret code. Yeah. Hey, let's go have a safety meeting. It's not really that secret. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a secret uh, anymore because we're putting it out there. Yeah. Um, and then the third meaning um, through my studies of comedic psychology is that the best way to get an involuntary laugh response is to create an environment of safety and then to bring in aggression or shatter that safety with a punchline. And that's how you get people to laugh. Ah, so when you're on stage. Yeah. You right, want to make I'm people inviting feel, you in. Oh, you feel safe. You feel safe. Boom. And then right that's in the face. Exactly. Okay. So those are the I never, three, I've never heard that one. Yeah. Those are the three meetings behind yeah. uh, the safety meeting podcast. I like it. Yeah. 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 So, um, sorry, I kind of derailed your story there a little oh, no, bit, no, no, but it's all good. It sounds like we were, um, we're in college, right? So I think maybe yeah. we can drop that college story now. So, yeah. So, so we're in college and, um, so at the time I went to a high school called North Central and then our rival high school was Carmel, um, you know, when we're 15 minutes apart. So I had friend, friends in Carmel. My friends, obviously, from North Central, uh, were down in Indiana University through the fraternity system, right? Mm-hmm. Which I'm you know, not a big fan of, but yeah, all right, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, knucklehead kids and find your way, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I've got friends over at this one fraternity house from, from high school. They've introduced me to other people. I've got friends at, at my fraternity, you know, and vice versa. And it turns out um, someone who became a dear, dear friend of mine, a guy named Greg Naiman, um, we're talking about... Uh, what are you going to do after college? Mm-hmm. Right. So, well, I'm going to move to California. Oh, well, Greg says, oh, I want to move to California. He said, well, I'm going to get into acting. He's like, oh, I want to move out to California. I want to get into acting. I said, yeah. great. Did he already have this plan? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He already had this plan in his head. So, um, so Greg and I, you know, over, over the years and getting to know each other, you know, we're probably in senior year in, in college. So, you know, it turns out, oh, hey, today's my birthday. And, oh, whoa, today's my birthday. <laughs> and I'm like, what? So, wait, April 5th. And he said, yeah, April 5th. I said, 1971. He said, 1971. Where were you born? I was born at St. Vincent's. Well, I was born at St. Vincent's. So it turns out that, that Greg, who's, you know, become one of my best friends in, in life and, and a dear, dear brother to me, we were born in the exact same hospital, same day. In, in, in Indianapolis, and then so we end up, you know, 23 years down the road, 24 years down the road in Los Angeles trying to find our way in the entertainment business. That's an amazing story. Yeah. But somebody else that you're dear friends with out here uh, in the entertainment business and also an assistant director, you knew from your early oh, childhood? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so Peter White, who's, you know, another dear, dear friend and, and brother to me, um, when I was a kid... Five minute walk from my house was this school, mm-hmm. right? And that's where my older brother went, you know, and my two sisters went to start. And my mom was a teacher. Um, she was an early childhood development professor in uh, 
a nursery school teacher and I'm just a rock star. But she was like, Jeremy, you're not going to this school, right? Mm-hmm. Which was, like I said, my five-minute walk from my house. Um, she's like, I'm going to put you on a bus. You're going to bus out 45 minutes to an hour every morning wow. and go to this new school that, that she had found, which was, you know, in, in today's day and age, I guess it would be kind of a, you know, more of a, a gifted, talented uh, art type school. Right. Um, so the buses weren't very short. No, okay. no, no. No short one. buses here. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so in third grade, I believe it was, um, I meet this guy, Peter White. Mm-hmm. We're sitting next to each other on the bus, and we've got our big silver, you know, Sony Walkmans, the headphones and the dual jacks. And, mm-hmm. and so Pete and I became really good buddies then. And, you know, oh, what do you listen to? Oh, I'm listening to Rick Springfield. Oh, cool, man. Can I plug in? You know, mm-hmm. what, what do you listen to? Oh, I listen to Joan Jett. Or, you know, can I plug in? Or, you know, whatever cassette tapes we had that day. And, right. Or if, if my batteries were up, we'd use mine. His batteries were up, you know. And then you're playing the little pocket, you know, uh, football game. Mm-hmm. You know, we can only move one direction. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, you get the, the, the other version. Now you can move both directions. So right. we share these games on our, on our hour-long uh, journey to school so so Pete and I we went, went to grade school together middle school together college together um, and then after college I moved to Los Angeles Pete moved I believe to Atlanta and we just you know, kind of went our separate ways and lost touch mm-hmm. um, I was out here for a couple years and at the time I was dating a gal who had just graduated from college and and she was moving to San Francisco so I was like oh you know I'm in love. Let's, you know, let's I'll move to San Francisco. Right. Sure. And, uh, so in, and I moved up with another couple friends actually from, from Indianapolis that lived outside of the city that I'd known two brothers I'd known since the sixth grade. So it was Randy Spruill and his brother, Cammy Spruill. And, uh, and I think Randy was actually my first friend in sixth grade cause it was a new school, mm-hmm. you know, so I didn't know anybody. I was kind of shy in that, in that way. And, um, so anyway, I move, I move up to San Francisco, and I was working as a production assistant at the time and still trying to get an agent and audition and get into you know, the Screen Actors Guild and all this, and spent most of my time going back and forth to, to Los Angeles to uh, you know, pay the bills, mm-hmm. even though rent was like 300 bucks a month. We had this, this house. In San Francisco? Well, we, were, we had this house outside of San Francisco. Uh, so we're in Pleasant Hill, yeah. right? We've got this three-bedroom house, pool, jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. Total suburban life out there, and I was like still struggling, like to pay three hundred bucks a month or something. You know who yeah. knows? But um, and then my girlfriend at the time lived in the Hate, um, which was awesome. You know, because I kind of had these these two little worlds between Los Angeles, between suburban life, and then also you know San Francisco, which was such an amazing, uh, amazing city, and also I mean uh, such an amazing experience to be up there and to be up there with her. Right. Mm-hmm. Were you doing production in San Francisco or you were driving? Well, I was trying to get into production in San Francisco, but mm-hmm. it's such a small little pocket yeah. that once you're in, you're in, mm-hmm. but you know, I would send out resume after resume for PA. Yeah. And I still, you know, for every one job I got in San Francisco, I'd have like five in Los Angeles. Sure. You know? So, um, needless to say, I, I spent about a, a, a year up there, and um, 
and she got an opportunity to go work on motor yachts as a stewardess, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, you know, who am I to to hold you back from this? I mean, this is I moved to Los Angeles to follow, you know, a dream of of acting in the film business. You're you know, we're 25, 26 years old. Go for it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so she went away, and I ended up moving back to L.A., um, which was funny because the weekend I physically moved back to L.A., that following Monday I get a phone call from my agent in San Francisco. Oh, you had local representation? Yes, I had a local, local representation there. Great. And the agent says, hey, congratulations. I said, what's up? She goes, well you booked this pharmaceutical commercial. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. I said, well, I just moved back to Los Angeles, so I got to, when is it? I'll drive back up. She's like, you know, fittings next week or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Two hours later, and I guess I shouldn't say I get a call. I got a page. Sure. This was the days of the pager, so I got a page from some number in San Francisco, and I called back, and I said, hey, you know, this is Jeremy Robinson. They said, Hey, uh, you available this week? I said, available for what? I said, to PA. So I left San Francisco. I book an acting job and I book a PA job. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is, if this isn't Murphy's Law, right? Sure. So the PA job is for the pharmaceutical company. Oh. And I booked it as an actor. They called me separately, not knowing the coordinator doesn't know who the cast is. Sure. They called me as a PA and I was like, this is fucking weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's not you know, Murphy's Law, right? Right. And, and, you know, how the universe works. So, so I ended up PAing on this job and then, you know, switch hats, right? Mm-hmm. And literally switch wardrobe and, and get out there and, and do the acting scene, you know, pharmaceutical, my big break, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the AD pulled me aside. She's like, oh, you're really good at this. Because don't, you know, don't you turn into some fucking asshole. Right, right. So she set me straight, mm-hmm. and and basically seems over, and she's like, "I, I go put your walkie back on, and let's get back to work." Nice. It was cool that they let you do both. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just you know, you know it's just funny that the that that they both booked in together. Um, but so so Peter White along those lines. So while I was in 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 that transition from San Francisco to Los Angeles, again I get you know page to my my voicemail my that I've set up on my. You know, mm-hmm. my beeper and, hey, it's Peter Wire. I'm just, I'm just moved to Los Angeles. You know, I'd love to reconnect. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So so Peter and I reconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also pursuing uh, production. So, so Peter was a PA. I was a PA. As it turns out, the small world of things, I had been PAing in Los Angeles for Peter's roommate. Wow. Not making the connection. Yeah that Peter and Colleen knew each other, and I guess they were roommates in Atlanta. I'm like, what a small And she was a coordinator or a production manager or yeah, producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now she's, you know, she's gone on. She's the executive producer as her own production company, and mm-hmm. she's done very well for herself. But I was just like, what a fucking small world. Yeah. yeah. That's just a trip. So LA is the biggest small town in the world. Totally. Yeah. You always run into somebody somewhere, or if you work in the business long enough, yeah. oh, it's good to see you again. Yeah. And just it seems like, it, you know, as we were talking earlier, I mean, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So, so Peter, Peter and I, you know, we would uh, we kind of progressed the the same way when when I moved into, you know, my first second AD job, and then 
you know, so I was working as a second, and then Pete became a second, and then I became a first, and, and Peter was my one of my seconds, uh, and then obviously, you know, he's moved on to become a first assistant director and has done done well for himself, and we, you know, we live these parallel lives, and, mm-hmm. and we never get to see each other. It's always a text or this or that, and I think one of the last times that I physically saw him um, was in Mexico City, of all places. Randomly, right? Well, randomly, yeah, he was sitting at home uh, on a Sunday, and I was supposed to travel to Mexico City on a Monday. Mm-hmm. And no more pager. Mm-hmm. Right? I get a text from Peter asking me the, my, the last name of one of my ex-girlfriends. And I was like, you know, I tell him the last name. And I'm like, that's odd. And, you know, he responds back. He goes, I think I just saw her on a billboard. Oh, cool. As he was leaving the airport in Mexico mm-hmm. City. And I was like, you know, that's very possible. You know, she, she's an actress and she does conventions sometimes and, uh, you know, science fiction and this and that. And I was like, A, that's really cool that, that he spotted her on a billboard, you know, even though, you know, we're, we're not together. But I still, you know, very, uh, very proud of all the work that she's done and, and her successes. Um, but then B, I was like, wait, you're in Mexico City. Where are you staying? Mm-hmm. And he says... I'm staying at the St. Regis. Why? And I said, well, I'm flying in tomorrow morning, and I'm staying at the St. Regis. So here we are. We don't get to see each other in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Fly to Mexico City, and there's three productions at the same hotel. Must have been the good hotel. It was a nice hotel. Yeah. Yeah. So so Pete and I got to hang out and catch up there, and I knew his producer, and he knew my producer, and it was just, again, this this small world of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so throughout the week, you know, he was up, doing like Michelob and I was doing lining Kugel. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, here's this, you know, these two worlds side by side again, you're down here doing beer. I'm doing beer. And yeah. Um, well, he's kind of known as being the beer guy though, right? He's got the Corona account. Well, I know he's done a lot of Corona's. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are nice jobs. Oh yeah. Yeah. He gets to travel, travel the world. They'll go yeah. scout like Brazil, Argentina, yeah. Peru, Chile, Colombia yeah. and for like 30 days and they'll just go look at beaches. Yeah. And then at the end, they'll go, yeah, we really like that one in Argentina. Yeah. Let's yeah. go back there. And then you look at the ad, and you're like, this looks like the beach from every other Corona ad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not. They're different, like, yeah. every time. And you just assume they do them on a stage in Los Angeles somewhere. But those right. are legit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and well, we got to shoot from 4 to 7. Yeah. yeah. Or from 5 to 7, or from 6 to 7, or whatever yeah. the, the time zone may be. Yeah, for 12 days. Yeah. Just to make it's, sure. it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So much like he... Um, is known for his his beer work and his beverage work. <laughs> uh, you've become known as the motorsports guy. Um, somewhat, yeah. Somewhat, yeah. Did you seek out as you're working as an AD? Did you seek out like if you had a choice between a car job and a, and a stage job, you went car, and then you just gradually was. Oh, I, w- I, w- I would take a car job over a stage job. I think any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a conscious choice that that I made at the time. You know, through through coming up. Uh, as an assistant director, you know, when I started, it was not, we were all non-union. So my opportunities came from music videos, mm-hmm. right? Because most of the commercials were governed by, you know, the director's guild. Um, so I did, I don't know, probably I have to go back, but at least six, 700 music videos, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and working my way through second ADing into first ADing. Um, and then into non-union promos and, and non-union commercials. And then, you know, there would be the 
non-union car commercials that came around. And I was just, for me and just my personality, I love to be out and about and not sitting down and staying still in one place. Mm-hmm. So the car commercials, you know, minus the inserts of knobs and this and that, gave me the opportunity to be out on a process trailer or to mm-hmm. be, you know, I think this was pre, you know, Russian arm and, and pre, yep. you know, camera cars, or not camera cars, but, you right. know, arm cars. Um, Real quick, for those at home, yeah. process trailer, Yes, that's the trailer we dragged the car on in front of the, so the, the camera car pulls the process trailer and the picture car rides on top of the process trailer and that's how we shoot it so the talent doesn't have to drive. Or so it looks, yes. So it looks like they're driving. It keeps them right. safe. We can mount lights on the right. trailer. We can do all kinds of things. And the Ultimate Arm is a super fast car with a crane attached to the top that you can put a camera on and it can match the speed or go greater than, most of the time greater than, yes. uh, speeding cars. Yes. So those are just a couple terms for my uh, two listeners that don't know anything about. Yeah, and in, in the engineering of things, they don't need to go that fast. The no. whole idea of the... You know, arm cars is to create the illusion of we're doing this crazy, dangerous, you know, aggressive dance, which mm-hmm. it, I mean, it really is. It's it's so much choreography, but the, every time the it's between the the stunt driver slash you know, I know that it's not a real term, the precision driver mm-hmm. that the agency likes to use the term loosely, uh, and the arm car drivers, it, it turns into a dance of you know, how can we push this envelope? Right. And there are times where you do need that, but mm-hmm. you know the vast majority of the time it's uh, thirty-five, forty-five. Yeah, it just turns into uh, adrenaline, you yeah. know, taking over. Yeah, you got to back those guys down a little bit. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean it's like stunts. You yeah. know, director's yeah. like, I think we're going to run the rehearsal at one hundred and forty miles an yeah. hour, yeah. and they're like, Well, we can do one sixty. Yeah. You're like, Guys, guys, yeah. guys, let's do it at twenty and yeah. see what happens. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, so when you um, transition, not transition, but as you decided, no, you said earlier it wasn't a conscious decision to pursue car work. It just happened to be something that you gravitate towards. Yes, and yeah. I think in car work stunts, uh, you know, fighting perhaps, um, any fight stuff. You know, there's been a handful, a handful of jobs where you know, with with stunt choreographers and, and dealing with, um, you know, fight sequences. But you know, it was a lot of. Um, you know, rigging work mm-hmm. uh, um, with with stunt performers flying, or you know, getting pulled for explosions, or you know, at one point we I was doing some work with uh, with the FX network, and uh, Paul Tolton, who was the director of DP, you know, it was for a show called um, Anger Management. Which, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure if it, it you know it was a year or so, um, you know, where we had to blow up a train, mm-hmm. you know, so we had this this active private train line that we had six cameras rigged to, which was really cool. And, you know, Charlie Sheen and his, and his uh, stunt double, uh, Eddie Braun, um, who's, you know, just a legend uh, in, in this business. Um, so, we you know, we got to do stuff like that, you know, where we have separate cars that we would physically blow up in these massive, you know, almost like Michael Bay explosions, mm-hmm. um, which were incredible. Um, so, so along those lines, you know, anything along, uh, the pyro, the, uh, the effects, uh, the stunt work, the rigging and the car work was, was stuff that I gravitated towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and about eight or nine years ago, um, I got a call from, from a producer that actually, I think, 
I, I used to PA with uh, Rick Brown, and he said, "Hey, I've got this job for uh, with a company called Logan." And you know, Ben Conrad was one of the partners and, and directors there that that I had AD'd for. Um, and Rick said, "Hey, you know, it's this YouTube, internet, car films that." I don't know too much about, you know, I'm not really familiar with these guys, but you can check out some of their links and uh, it's called Jim Connor. Mm-hmm. So the, these guys had done Jim Connor one, two and three, and this was Jim Connor four, which was going to take place at universal studios. So, mm-hmm. so I looked the stuff up and I'm like, Oh, this is, this is really cool. Yeah. yeah. This is going to be fun. Yeah. For the one person in the world that doesn't know yeah. what Jim Connor is, yeah. it's um, Ken Block. Ken Block. Yep. From the DC shoes. Yes, the founder of DC Shoes. Founder, uh, yeah, or one of the founders, rather. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up, so hopefully you correct me. But he either uh, retired or sold his shares and started a racing team, and they made internet videos that went. I mean, viral makes it sound silly. They went, they broke the internet. Yes, they, every they time. broke the viral record. Right. In and, in the history of YouTube, for the most amount of views for their collective uh, films, which are now up to. You know, Jim Connor 10 mm-hmm. and offshoots of those. Climb Connor, which took place at Pikes Peak. Right. Terra Connor in Utah. Um, so, so I mean, they're just, and each one is, is its own individual story. Each mm-hmm. one is its own individual um, car, you know. Um, so, yeah, so Ken, uh, Ken sold DC shoes, um, decided that, that all, you know, kind of what am I going to do next? I'm sure he had many things going, but he decided he wanted to become a race car driver, and he grew up doing uh, motocross and, you know, uh, kind of, you know, action sports along those lines. So he went to, to rally school, and from there, um, they started doing the Jim of videos. Right, which right. at first, one, two, and three, kind yeah. of smaller crews, kind yes. of run and gun. Yes. But then yeah. they knew, hey, four, we're at Universal. We need a pro to help us run this crew. And that's when Rick brings you in. Well, so this is when, um, between Brian Scotto, who's their, their head creative director, he's also, you know, the driving coordinator. He designs the tricks, and he's, you know, he's a car enthusiast and a driver himself. Um, gets together with Ben. They create this storyline for Jim Connor 4 at Universal Studios, which is all along the back lot. And, you know, you go through Jaws and the trams and, you know, New York Street and... Uh, most of the time sideways, though, right? Yeah, most of the time Whatever sideways. he's going through, yeah. he's either sideways, backwards, or flipping yeah. around, or in the air. Yes, yeah. So so Rick Rick invites me along, and, and Ben is a dear friend of mine. Um, we get there, we're doing our scouts. I know a little bit about the, um, you know, from what I've seen from the videos, but I don't know any of these guys. So I get there, and you know, these guys are running around on BMX bikes, and skateboards and golf carts keep going missing and I'm like mm-hmm. what the fuck did I get myself into you right. know um, but once that race car fired up it gave me goosebumps and still you know to this day you know I've done Jim kind of four five six seven eight nine ten um, and I was a part of the, the Pikes Peak Climb Kana and, and the Terra Kana. Um, and some other projects with these guys, but still to this day, no matter what the vehicle is uh, that, that they've brought along or they've designed or whatever our race car 
you know, or a race truck or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. uh, it still gives me goosebumps. And I think I knew at that time, God, I hope there's another one of these, you know? Right. Um, Every time you're like, man, I can't wait for the next Yeah, one. yeah. Exactly. But they're, they're not, it's not a quick thing. Like, it takes months of planning. You guys pre-scout six months in advance. Well, I, along, the, along the years, it's, it's evolved mm-hmm. uh, into those kind of things. Like, you know, for Universal, you know, we had a day of scout and then, you know, a couple of days of prep. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, between locations and between the creative, they had more of their director's scouts and producer meetings and, you know, and, and all of those things. And because Universal, you know, is as um, is a tough location to book, especially for something like that, where you're right. going to be ripping around. Yeah. Uh, but, leaving tire marks every place. Yeah. And, They're happy to rent you a stage. Yes. There's 30 of them. Yes. But yeah. once when you're In like, I want to be outside yeah. and I want to rip around all the stages, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um but like last year, we or not last year, but you know, over the course of the last couple of years, we had we did um, Jim Connor ten. So that would that took place in Sweden, in Mexico, in Texas, in Detroit, and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So for those, we had more pre scouts, sure. you know, um, or or going to see the mountain, you know, Pikes Peak pre scouts. Or, um, but usually, you know, we we tag that onto the front end where we'll show up and and we'll scout with with Brian. Um, uh, and 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 our producers, um, and then get into meetings. Now it's turned into, or now it has. You know, it, the the bigger the jobs got, the more people that got involved. You know, mm-hmm. at one point in Detroit, I think we were with the FBI, Homeland Security, the mayor's office, fire department, the police department. Um, same in Buffalo. You know, you have to go and present these ideas. Right. Here's here's what here's what's going to happen. You know, here's some of the videos we've done in the past. Um, and you'd already broken the internet nine times, so this is supposed to be the, like the, 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 the ten grand was supposed fi- to be the big yeah yeah the big grand event. finale. Yeah, yeah. we really got to do it up. Yeah. So you're not just closing down a street, which is in itself difficult. Yeah. You're closing down cities. Yes, at, yeah, yeah. in pockets. You know, we, yeah. we have a, a a picture here in the office, which is a cityscape of San Francisco. Yes. Um, signed by Ken, which is pretty awesome. Yes, that showed uh, up got one day, that, which was a very nice gift. And yeah, thank you. It's got that car yeah. drifting around, but there's a there's That's, an interesting story from the San Francisco one about the bridge, right? Locking up the bridge, locking up the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, no, this was actually this was the Bay Bridge. Okay. Oh, the bigger one. Um, no. Uh, well, Gold, Golden Gate is the more famous. Correct. Red. Bay Bridge, you know, connects Oakland and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, what in the design of things and what we had worked out with Caltrans and, and Highway Patrol was they would start a rolling block from Oakland uh, at the toll booth there, and they would let us know. We'd, we'd get the last car through so we'd know that we'd have a, you know, a fully clear bridge. And when we talk about a rolling block, uh, basically what happens is, um, for those of you in California, you've seen CHP swerving back and forth uh, on, on the highways here. Um, and I'm not, and I'm sure that they would in other parts of the country, but it's a way to slow traffic down without stopping traffic. Mm-hmm. So they would start a rolling block from from the Oakland toll booths. We were on Treasure Island, which is a, kind of a midway mark uh, across the bridge, and we'd shoot into the city, where Highway Patrol would release to San Francisco PD. We'd get the car safely, you know, at position two or at the end of the run. Uh, and then we'd all reset back and, and go again. So 
we had everybody on. We had, you know, maybe six cameramen um, on, as Isaac was saying earlier, on a camera car. So it was almost like a SWAT tactical team. Mm -hmm. There was no process trailer. The, the, the camera car was our vehicle to get us up on the bridge, drop off the shooters, get around the race car. And this was the start of the film. And mm -hmm. so, so within this rolling block, we've got, you know, two minutes or so before all this traffic catches up to us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've, we've gone through all of our planning, our safety meetings, logistics, you know, coordination with Highway Patrol, with Caltrans, and um, we get up there, and the very first take, you know, goes off, I mean, pretty smoothly. Mm -hmm. We get the car, which exits the bridge and drifts around this massive turn or you know exit off the off the highway into the city mm -hmm. we get ken and everybody's safe and we come back to to treasure island and the sergeant of the highway patrol pulls me aside he's like how many more times do you plan on doing this <laughs> i was like um how many times can we do it he's like i'm getting my ass chewed and it, it had caused so, so much of a traffic backup in Oakland, the Caltrans was getting calls right and left. Highway Patrol was getting calls right and left. Mm -hmm. So basically, I think maybe they gave us one, if not maybe two more takes of that. They're right. like, "We need to get you guys out of here, right, and get you off of the the bridge." Because the homies in Oakland weren't having it. Yeah, nobody was having. Yeah. It. And you did all that with a helicopter in the air as well, right? Yeah, helicopter. This was helicopter, and you know, I don't know, fifty GoPros or whatever it was, peppered around the car, mm -hmm. a bunch of handheld cameras, uh, you know, in car, out car. Uh, and you know, all with 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 Ken doing you know 130 miles an hour or whatever top speed is. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was pretty epic. It was pretty epic. And so. that's the same job that you guys went out on the barge, right? Yes. So yeah. we had a we had a. They, they came up. I think it was Matthew Holt, who was the production designer, came up with the idea. You know, what if we went out on a barge? You know. Um. And that got sold down down the. Mm -hmm down the pipeline and, and they found the money for it. And, you know, so we, we, we get, uh, Ken jumping from, from land over a ramp and onto this barge. And then and we have this barge out in the bay there and he's doing, you know, donuts around a forklift and just, just letting loose. But the, the real internet breaker on that one was when he pulled the tires were like off of the side and they're spinning. But if he had gone too far, he would have been in the water. Well, and I'm not describing that right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that. And in, in in my head, that was Buffalo, where he really, you know, went. The tires went over the edge, and really, the only thing that that that's keeping him grounded is that it's all wheel drive. Right. Very well, you know, you plan for the worst case scenario of you have divers in the water and you have you know safety uh, all around, and he's got an oxygen tank in there if he needs it. He's got a knife in there if he needs it. But um, so that was, you know, that was further down the road in the, in the series of, mm -hmm. um, of the Jim Connors that, that really, I mean, it, 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 each time it seemed like they just, they would find a new way to push the envelope, mm -hmm. you know, and he had some amazing things that he did in San Francisco and, but he'd also, he would, he would do things, you know, you'd rehearse it one way. Sure. He'd drive the line. So cameras are getting set mm -hmm. and he would still, you know, you have this A and you have this B But in between A and B, he would completely switch it up. Sure. So, that, I mean, it was just like, oh, my God, did he just do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just fucking did that, you know. Um, 
when we were I don't know, jumping around and all these the storyline of all these, but I don't remember when we were in in Pikes Peak and we were with uh, a guy named Randy Royal who was um, mountain safety, race safety, mm-hmm. basically the track safety for Pikes Peak, and we did Ken did this this they called it drift to edge, and Watching his back wheels, you know, there's no guardrails or anything up there. Mm-hmm. Very, very few. Um, I mean, there's some reference to being to dying or killing oneself in the name of that turn, right? Uh, it's like dead man's. There, there's there are a bunch of turns are named different things, yeah. and and there are years where you know nobody gets hurt, and there are other years, you know, many years where where people have gone off the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, to 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 their peril, you know, mm-hmm. and and. So I mean, it is not uh, anything to take lightly, and and especially the amount of risk that these guys take. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. But I was standing there at a vantage point, and we see Ken come up, and and as he's drifting, the back tires go off the pavement, basically off the dirt, and he's hanging over the edge, and you know, being the, the incredible pro that he is. Just crushes it. I mean, he just just crushes the the action or the trick or you know whatever you want to call it. But I'm standing there next to Randy, who's been on that mountain for I don't know thirty years or so. I mean, he used to build Indy cars in Indianapolis, and mm-hmm. I mean, I've never felt safer in my life than I did with Randy and his team. Right? He's standing next to me, and he's like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> and when you hear a guy like that who's seen just about everything. Mm-hmm. Say this, and like he was so stoked on it that I was like, "Yeah, that's pretty, pretty fucking incredible." Yeah, when you, you see know? a guy with forty, fifty years of experience, yeah, see something new, yeah, you know you're doing yeah. something right. Yeah, so that all ended, so. ended up leading episode ten ended up becoming its own separate TV show. There's a making of on Amazon, correct? So Am- Amazon uh, for the for the tenth anniversary or the tenth film, Am- uh, I'm not sure how it all came about, but um, you know, if it was Brian pitching this idea, or or Ken, or you know, their their collection of relationships, but so Amazon decided they were going to do a making of series, mm-hmm. um, and it was you know eight episodes or so, and, and releasing Jim Connor ten within that show, mm-hmm. um, and it was a really cool series, and it, you know because. Uh, if, if you watch it or if you get a chance to watch it, uh, it's on Amazon Prime. And, and, and it's just a really neat way to see, A, you know, what what we do with these films collectively as a team, but also, B, to learn uh, more about Ken and his backstory and, you know, and this car culture, mm-hmm. you know, that they've really created and, um, um, and rejuvenated, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because, I mean, cars have been a thing for so many years, but um, within this these films I, I think that it's really brought together you know this newer generation of drifters and this and that and car enthusiasts but also the, you know the the old school muscle car guys mm-hmm. and you know it's connected these two worlds um so amazon followed us basically for you know a year and a half two years mm-hmm. um and it was it was interesting to see how they they unfolded their own story yeah you know? and as a callback if you really want to check out one of Jeremy's famous safety meetings that we were talking about at the top of the episode. I think it shows clips of maybe three or four of those. 
Uh, so you're a cast member on an Amazon Prime TV show, yes. which takes us all the way back to your <laughs> pursuit of acting. Yes. When you uh, when you moved out here, did you yep. ever think you'd be the star of an Amazon Prime show? Hey, uh, I'm not the star of an Amazon <laughs> Prime show. I'm more of a background player, yeah. you know. You're, I, I would say you're a principal cast member. Okay. Sure. All right. Yeah. Your interview made the Su- cut. Supporting. Yeah. So let's. Supporting. So. Was, if we're talking about eight or nine years ago when you start the Jim Connor thing. Yeah. Is that about the same time that you started Brickyard Films? Uh, 2006 uh, was when I officially started Brickyard Films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, little by little, you know, we would help uh, produce independent films or produce shorts or, you know, and eventually that led into servicing uh, commercials. You know, you've directed a couple projects, music videos. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, about 2006 or so is, is when we started uh, Brickyard Films. And, you know, the idea was, you know, with this, this uh, incredible pool of relationships and this, this pool of friends and ADs and producers and casting directors and, you know, production designers, et cetera, almost build this this cooperative kind of space, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, even if we don't have anything going on physically at the company, right, other ADs would come by and do their prep work here or uh, writers would come by and write here or, mm-hmm. you know, as, as you have uh, and, and, and others have, you know, come by for table reads or, you know, it was, it was almost, you know, this kind of... Uh, you know, brickyard brickyard was is the house and and let's fill the house right let's it's fill the community house. it's a community yeah, yeah. of relationships that right. you've built over the years right and so. uh you've been very generous with your space and your time yeah and uh you know you, it's not always about monetary gain for people to come in here and no, work right, here. it's right. about the energy that people bring yeah um which is the number one thing that people comment on when they come to be a guest here is that they love the energy in the space they yeah. love the way that there's uh the decorations on the wall. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> You'll have to come be a guest if you want to see what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, please come by. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but bring your stories, guys. Bring your big guns if you're coming to the Brickyard Media Group. Because, uh, well, if you don't bring them, I'll get them out of you one way or another. Uh, did you... <laughs> Spill yep, coffee on yep. myself again, yeah. We got a two-time coffee spiller here, Mr. Yeah. Jeremy Robinson. In, in a white, uh, white snap-down shirt, which right. is lovely. So yeah. uh, the thing that, to tie it all together... We uh we we start. Did you start going back to the Brickyard Five Hundred, like when you moved out here, or was that multiple years later? Did you when did you start going to the Brickyard every year? Well, um, uh, I I tried to go. Basically, I think I went. You know, through high school, I went through college. Uh, there were years when I was out here where I where I couldn't go back. Um, so I you know in in the last, I think ten years or so, I, I think I've been every year. Um, so the you know you have the Indianapolis 500, uh, which is you know, basically it's it can be the month of May. Mm-hmm. I'll try to go back for a week. You know it's just nice to uh, it, it's such an incredible energy to be around. Um, even if you know, race fan or not, I tell people you, once in your life you have to go to the Indianapolis 500. Mm-hmm. You know, you have two and a half miles basically of people. Yeah, you know, and it's not. It's crazy, but it's not crazy like in bar fight crazy. It's crazy in, in just the, the noise level from the cars and the energy of the people. And, you know, from, you know, like I said, from when I was a kid, six, seven years old, just walking to, you know, 80-year-old plus uh, fans, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they come from all over the world, all over the country. Yeah. 
Um, and it's just some of the experiences is seeing any moving object going that fast. What is it, 220, 230? 230, 237, 240, yeah. you know, I mean, depending on, on, on qualifications. Right. And I mean, I don't even know. How physically fast they can go now, mm-hmm. you know. At, at, but during the race, it's, you know, it's a little bit slower. But then you get you get these incredible moments of you know these dog fights and um, yeah. So if if you ever get a chance, book out a week at the end of May and Memorial Day weekend, go go see the Indianapolis 500. Right. Yeah. So the through line here is that it's kind of always been in your blood since you were a kid. Yes. Racing has always been a theme. Yes. Music's always been in there with the DJ thing. Yes. And then it's time to start your company. Yes. Naturally, boom, Brickyard Films, right? Yes. Named after the Indianapolis uh, 500. Well, named after the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah. Motor Speedway, yeah. which is also known as the Brickyard. The Brickyard, yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then, you know, you get more and more and further and further into motorsports filming. Yeah, uh, almost coincidentally. You right. know, I mean, these, these opportunities, you know, happened. And yeah. it was... Um, you know, when I first moved out here, the, the focus was specifically on acting. So I come out at, at, at 23, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, however old I was, working double shifts at, at the Sports Club LA, hanging out locker keys and towels. I think at one point, I, Greg and I were cleaning houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just doing anything I could just to pay the rent. Right. If I could see a video of you handing out towels and keys. Yes. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. I'd pay a lot of money for it. Was, you know, it was an incredible experience because you met some amazing people mm. and then you met some absolutely batshit fucking crazy people. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess this is Los Angeles. We have a valet service. We have massage service. We have a deli. We have a restaurant. There's a beauty salon in there. Mm. But I think there's a boutique in there. I'm like, who valets their car to go work out? And half the people would come in there wouldn't even work out, right? Sure. So making deals as Chad oh, yeah. says. Yeah, making deals. Yeah, just walking around. <laughs> so um so within that then the, I get a phone call from a friend of mine, a friend of a friend from from college saying, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, Well, I'll probably be at the at the gym working. What's going on? He's like, Do you want to make 150 bucks? And I was like, Shit, 150 <laughs> bucks, I'm rich. Yeah. I said, like, What do I gotta do? He's like, Well, you gotta go over here and pick this up, you gotta get on a plane, you gotta go drop this off. And then fly back, right? It's called being a PA. I'm like, well, PA, it's like production assistant. I was like, all right, I could do that. Did you, at first, did you think it was like illegal? Well, it just sounded shady. That's way too much money for me to just, what am I, transporting drugs? Well, no, yeah. It was like, get on a plane, drop this off, come back. Well, it turns out I had to like get on a puddle jumper and fly out to the desert, drop off a film permit, and come back, mm-hmm. right? So, that was kind of like my start to PA. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was trying to pursue acting and not knowing enough about this business and not having the confidence from a business standpoint to do everything I needed to be doing, right? Yeah. As an, as an aspiring actor. So I had these two little kind of worlds going. Right? Meaning like classes and headshots. and Classes, the- headshots, gym, marketing. Yep. Yes, all, all of those things. And they cost money. It's too, expensive you know? it's a, yeah. to be an actor, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think in today's day and age, it's so much not not easier by any means, but it's so more accessible because of you know uh, internet mm-hmm. and uh, you know you can you can really market yourself on your own. You can, you know, through but social back then, media. And there's more outlets. There's more TV shows. Exactly. We have Netflix and Amazon yeah. and Hulu now. And yeah, there's just more opportunity. Yeah. So, so I was I was picking away at, at classes and doing these things, 
Um, and little, you know, small things would, would come to, the, you know, small short films, you know, so I was kind of, you know, learning, learning my way and trying to navigate the business. But then PAing became, you know, kind of my breadwinner, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, well, this is really interesting. So then as I moved along, well, I started booking commercials and, you know, get an agent. And, oh, but I'm also PAing. Well, as a PA, maybe I can leave for this callback. You know, someone can cover me for a couple hours. All right, and then I moved into second ADing. All right, well, maybe as a second AD, I could leave, depending on the job, I could leave for a couple hours for this callback. But that what really made the kind of the, the jump between the two worlds was when I first, or when I started first ADing. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, up until that point, I was still doing workshops and, and doing theater and you know going to auditions. But then as a first AD, you know, as an assistant director, it's like, you're not leaving set. You have to be there. Right. Yeah, you're right by the camera. So at that point, it was kind of make that choice, just not from a creative standpoint or from a, it was more of a life standpoint. It's like, well, I have these opportunities as, a, as an assistant director to, to keep doing all these really cool things. And so I basically had to put, you know, the acting in, in timeout, mm-hmm. right? And, and so from that, what is missed is that creative outlet, which mm-hmm. you don't always, you know, get as an assistant director. Uh, and many times you do. Um, just for the, you know the fulfillment of of project, um, but within this uh, this goes back to kind of founding Brickyard Films. Which, sure. Hey, we can make our own things. Right. Right. So it's a creative outlet when you're not necessarily maybe being creatively fulfilled at work. Now you have created a house for creativity exactly to happen in your off time exactly. And I know that was kind of a long way around to get there, but that's you know that was the idea behind that. Mm-hmm. And so you know we um, we had made. Uh, a feature film called Lunatics, Lovers, and Poets that, that a dear friend of mine, uh, John Schooler, wrote and directed. Mm-hmm. And his wife, Madeline, who I knew through production, was also an actress. And she was the executive producer, and she was acting in it. And and Brickyard was producing, and I got a, you know, a chance to act in it as, as one of the co-leads. So it was nice to have these opportunities and these outlets and it wasn't by any sort, you know, any sort of financial gain. Mm-hmm. But it was like we have the facility to do this. We right. have the the resources to do this. So that's kind of one of the the things that that helped Brickyard take off mm-hmm. and you know kind of generate, you know, get the wheels spinning. You sure. know what I mean? And if it wasn't or for all of that, moving, yeah, there wouldn't be a Brickyard Media Group, which is the right. sister that's company of Brickyard Films. Yes. Yeah, uh, located in the back, <laughs> in the back yeah. shed here, yeah, at, uh, in the Brickyard Media Group complex, mm-hmm. um, in the West Wing, in the in the West Wing. Yeah, um, this facility has a lot of history, and uh, those stories are only told if you come here and do an episode of a show. We'll tell you the right. history of our building. Yes, legendary. Many, many things have happened here. Yeah, Ho- it's a Hollywood uh, staple, but it's a secret. Yes. And you, uh, you only get to come here if you're invited. <laughs> and we like to keep it that way. Um, so we'll keep inviting people. We will. Yes, yeah, we will. If, come you, visit. if we extend an invitation, please, please uh, take us up on that. Um, so to wrap it up, uh, yeah. two things. One, um, I'd love for you to share the Corvette story. Okay. Uh, and then I have one last question that I ask everybody on the way out. It's a quickie. And then uh, we'll wrap this up. we got to go meet the attorney. This is actually true. Yeah. Going yeah. to meet the attorney. So, uh, last story, uh, based off of, of my work with the Hoonigan gang and becoming friends with, you know, Brian and, and all the, uh, 
um, the other shooters or you know film uh, camera operators, etc. Uh, through through the years of of doing these the motorsports films, um, which uh, again has been such an incredible opportunity. It's led to to doing uh, work with Red Bull and F1, and uh, last summer I got to work on the Art of Racing in the Rain, um, which is coming out next week. Which is yes, uh, August sixth. This episode will out. be yeah. out before that. Yeah, so, so I go see it. Spend three weeks up in Canada with uh, with uh, Jeff Swart, who's an incredible. A cinematographer and director, and also incredible race car driver. Um, I think he's won Pikes Peak like ten times or so. Oh, no big deal. Yeah, no big deal, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so within my work with these guys, you know, they, you know, they've all got their drifting cars or their muscle cars or their Porsches, and they're like, "Look, dude, you're gonna keep hanging out with us. We got to get you some sort of car, Jay." Mm-hmm. And. So, you know, I'd always been a big fan, obviously, of, of the Indianapolis 500. And, you know, I loved old Trans Ams and old Camaros. And, you know, my first car was this 3.8 liter Buick Regal, right? It was mm-hmm. just a rust fucking bucket by the time I got it, which then became the Grand National, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, was an incredible uh, car from, you know, the early 80s. Um, but so, you know, these guys say, Hey, look, we got to get, you got to get some sort of car if you're going to hang out with us, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) So, so I started looking around and, and, and being the fact that, that, you know, that I had so much, uh, you know, passion for the Indianapolis motor speedway and the, and the 500 and the company is Brickyard Films. I was like, look, you know, a, maybe I should get a pace car. Right. Oh. Maybe if get an old pace car. It, you know, it's also it's a marketing tool for the company. It's also you know a nod to Indianapolis. It's it's also something I grew up with. So, uh, a friend of mine, um, Brian Moore's father had just passed away, and his dad was a Corvette guy. So in the conversations that we were having, he's like, "Look, my dad had this Indianapolis 500 pace car. It's for sale. It's in Arizona." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, I'd love to." you know, go check it out. Well, it turns out, like, you know, we just couldn't line our schedules, right? To, for me to get out there you know, during the week, and they were only open during the week, et cetera. So we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, trying to figure this all out, and not about haggling for price or anything along those lines. And so I get a text from him one day. He's like, you're going to kill me. And I'm like, you tell me that fucking car sold. I am going to fucking kill you. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly, Yeah. <laughs> going to meet the attorney here. He's like, nope, uh, didn't sell. My mom's giving it to my stepbrother. Oh, no. And I was just crushed, right? Yeah. That's even worse than selling it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they sold it, you could at least find the other buyer and yeah. go like, what's up, yeah. dude? What name yeah. price? Yeah. So so this is right around Christmas. And, and Greg, uh, you know, Greg, who we talked about earlier, my, my brother and dear friend was like, you know, man, I guess, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. You know, you got to let it go, right? So I go home. It's at Christmas. I'm coming back from Indianapolis to Los Angeles. In the Indianapolis International Airport, there's a Brickyard gift shop. So what do I see when I walk in there but a scale replica of this 1978 Indianapolis 500 pace car? The one that's on the desk in the front? The one that's on the desk in the front. Wow. So I see this, and I'm like, God damn, this breaks my heart. So I take a picture of it. I send it to Brian. I send it to Greg. I'm like, you guys are fucking killing me, right? 
So bring the little model back. I'm like, well, if I can't have a real pace car, I'm going to have this pace car, you know, mm-hmm. and put it on the desk out there in front. And about a month later, I got a text from Bmore, and he says, hey, good news. And I'm like, oh, good news, what? Brickyard, you, you and I, we're going to do a job together. He goes, no, pace cars to sale again. I was like, what? He said, well, I'm going to uh, Costa Rica or something with my family. When we get back, we'll sort it out. And I said, dude, I want that car, right? Mm-hmm. So he comes back. We go back and forth again, the text and this and that and the other. I'm like, dude, I'll just, I'll buy it sight unseen. Let's just fucking figure this out, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then here comes the other text. Dude, you're really going to kill me. I'm like, oh, what the no. Fuck? So this text now says, yeah, it's going to Larry or whoever in Colorado, the stepbrother. I'm like, God damn it, be more. So I go in my office, I put together a list, mm-hmm. I pull images offline of pace cars from 1970 to, to like up to the Trans Am or something in 1981 or 1982 or whatever year it was. Mm-hmm. So I've got this PDF now with five cars on it. I basically, put it in the email. I said, you find me one of these fucking cars, right? Mm-hmm. So the next thing you know, my, my email's blowing up. This link and this link and this link and this link. And, uh, and I was sitting with dear friend of mine, uh, Nate Stebner, and we're, we're having a martini one, I think it was like a Friday afternoon or something. And we're looking at all these links and, you know, a couple drinks in, you get it, get a little, fuck it. Yeah. Right? So two or so martinis in, next thing you know, I'm on eBay and he's like, dude, you've been talking about this for two fucking years, just pull the trigger, right? So, <laughs> bink, buy it now. Well, you found one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we found one, right? Yeah. Or they helped me find one. Yeah. 24,000 miles, one owner Mm -hmm. in Michigan. This guy had bought it off a car lot and put on some new tires and brakes and, I don't know, added a couple thousand dollars to the price and and was selling it, right? So this this cat had had this car for 40 years or so, right? Wow. Garaged. Garaged, yeah. He had turned it in to buy a new Mustang. So it's just sitting on a dealer lot and, and whoever... You know, the gentleman that I bought it from bought it. So we go back and forth, and he's saying, you know, I really want the manual version of this, and da-da-da-da-da. You know, he's like, you know, obviously, a, uh, you know, a gearhead and, and, and knew what he was talking about. And mm-hmm. um, So I bought it and had it shipped out, and that is the story of my uh, 1978. So no fly-up to inspection, no, no, just a no. couple martinis and a credit card, and we got a Corvette. Well, that was the, like the down payment. And then, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so now that is the uh, the new mascot of of Brickyard Films, and uh, uh, you know, as I say, it's my mistress. The yeah, and the, now it's securely garaged at your domicile. It is safe and sound. Yes, yes. So it's it's protected. Yes, great. Yes. Um, so. Well, I have one last question that I think that I ask everybody, but I've forgotten a couple of times. Um, this is in the vein of. Um, Comedian Pete Holmes asked everybody, what's the hardest time you've ever laughed in your whole life, right at the end of his podcast? So I'm augmenting that a little bit. What's the best meal you've ever had? Oh. Like, like the, one, the one that sticks out, you're like, man. Or if, the, if you don't have a singular one of those, I think I know the answer to this follow-up question. What's your favorite restaurant? Well, um, I think what, what pops into my head, I mean, obviously, as you know, I love Mastro's. 
and steak and oysters, and as I mentioned, martinis. But I think one of the best meals, or at least the memory uh, of that meal would be when I was 21, 22, and I used to go to Vegas all the time with um, one of the girlfriends I was telling you about before, and also my best girlfriend, Amy and her family, right, the Aldens. They'd always take me out and treat me, you know, as if I was one of their sons. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Again, I was PAing at the time, broke. They're like, "Can you if you can get to Vegas, we'll take care of you." You know, so I get my way to Vegas somehow. Yep, get a free room. You know, we get free show tickets, Hall and Oates, and I mean, whatever Don Rickles, and mm -hmm. it was. I just felt like a king, right? But I remember vividly having dinner with them one night, and out comes this fucking tower of food. And it's this seafood tower. Mm -hmm. I mean, it must have been like three feet high. Wow. Yeah. And this was old school Vegas. It wasn't, you know, the comps back then, it was like, yeah, you know, there'll be a limousine out, up, outside at 7 o'clock, and we've got your reservations at this off-strip restaurant or wherever it was, mm -hmm. and we would just go, and, and but everything was on the house. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, eventually, I mean, no, it's Vegas. You're going to pay for it, but we didn't have to pay for it at the time. So You pay for it at the tables. So. Yeah, pay for it at the tables. Yeah. So, so that... Um, as definitely a very many very fond memories with those guys, but but very fond. Uh, Do you remember what restaurant it was? <clears throat> no, I don't. The, the the name that that sticks out in my head of of meals with with those guys uh, and and subsequent trips was Piero's, which is very nice, classy, old school. Yeah, we went there for your birthday one year. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're in Nate's birthday. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, but that wasn't where the seafood tower was. But right. it was something along those lines. I mean, we just I just felt like a king. Yeah. You know? But this is back in the day, uh, not super far This was back, back in the day, day of the Desert Inn. Right. So now it's Win and Encore. But sure. this was the Desert Inn, which, you know, to this day, I still think is the classiest place, or was the classiest place in Vegas until yeah. they blew it up in the background of Ocean's 11 or 12 or whatever that was. Is that the, mo is that the, yeah. that's the hotel? That's the hotel, yeah, that they... They blow up. So it was record. around until 2002, oh, yeah. 2003? Yeah, but started, you know, uh, if you do come to the office, you can see we've got a lot of Desert Inn memorabilia here. Yeah. Um, but I think it was, you know, Howard Hughes owned it at one point before that. I think it started in the 40s or 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, it's definitely an old Rat Pack kind of joint, so. Yep. We've had a lot of good times there. Yes, yes. And many more coming up. Yep. Uh, if you're in Vegas in the month of October, <laughs> my birthday party will be somewhere on the Win and Encore compound. Yeah. Unless it's at Cosmo. And that's all I'm going to tell you about that. October at some point, and either Encore or Cosmo. Uh, Jeremy, I want to thank you a lot for not only the opportunity to have this entire podcast and the network and all the new opportunities, but uh, for the space and for your partnership, and thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Telling us your That's story. Well, I think this is it's gonna on. be. I think it's gonna be the <laughs> highest rated episode yet. Episode eleven, Jeremy Robinson. Thanks, Jeremy. See you All next right. time, everybody. Thank you. Bye.